You are listening to Robert Vane's Hegel Podcast. Perhaps we should not be talking about this. Oh, no, no, no. We're, t- we're talking about this. We're certainly going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the concept of personality or what it means to be a subject of rights. And that includes the analysis of paragraph 35 to 39 of the philosophy of right. The first part of Hegel's philosophy of right deals with property and contract. And of course these concepts had already been treated in the tradition of the so-called natural law philosophy, from Thomas Hobbes to Immanuel Kant. In that tradition the foundation of the social order was some kind of natural characteristic or property of human beings, or the arbitrary decisions of state rulers. Hegel sides with that part of this tradition that tries to find the foundation in human subjectivity. But his interpretation of that subjectivity is totally different. Hegel especially criticizes the concept of freedom that is assumed in that tradition. It is his goal not to simply discard this tradition, but to take it to another level. The meaning of freedom in this tradition is now considered from the perspective of a concept of freedom that transcends that tradition. Natural law is a valid understanding of human liberty, but only up to a point. This is the reason that Hegel does use one of the foundational concepts of the natural law tradition, that is the concept of person or personality. Hobbes and others have described the freedom of persons to be, I quote, the freedom to act as we please in so far we are willing to recognize others as bearers of equal rights or the same rights. According to Hegel, this is correct as long as the concept of freedom is properly understood. As we have seen, Hegel sees in the free will an inner finality or telos that drives freedom to be autonomous and self-related. Ultimately, the free will wills itself and expresses itself in an objective world, the social institutions that both limit our freedom and make it possible. Another important aspect of the natural law tradition that is criticized in Hegel's philosophy of right is its understanding of human subjectivity as basically defined by its needs and desires. When this assumption is carried through within a philosophical understanding of society, 
everything becomes defined by its economic meaning. That is one of the main movements of thought within the natural law tradition. Human beings relate to one another as needy subjects, and therefore society must limit the exercise of freedom um, in the attempt to achieve fulfillment and happiness for everyone by introducing external boundaries for that freedom. The relation between human beings as needy beings is essentially negative. Others are first and foremost competitors for the goods that I need. Hegel, on the other hand, assumes that the relation between human subjects is basically communicative or intersubjective. The social order is not external to needy and greedy individuals, but it contains commonality, compassion, cooperation, etc., because our human existence can only be exercised in social contexts. Other people are not merely my competitors, they also essentially contribute to my being human. My subjective being can only be expressed concretely within a community. This communal or social element of freedom is only negatively present in the abstract concept of the free will as we have seen before, and therefore not adequately dealt with in the natural law tradition. found in paragraph 27 the abstract concept of the free will as the free will that wills the free will. Freedom therefore implies relatedness to itself or autonomy. At the beginning of the development of freedom and the institutions that belong to it we are still dealing with the abstract and the immediate. The autonomy of the will is at first abstract, that is to say it is something that belongs only to itself and is not effective yet in its relation to others. My autonomy is not realized fully in the abstract institutions of society, not given by the abstract principles that are being used in the natural law theory. At first we need to consider the immediate institutions, that is those limitations of freedom, that do not seem to have any inner contradiction. The higher institutions are mediated by those internal contradictions, which makes them concrete and part of reality instead of abstract and just part of abstract thinking. A social institution, like property for instance, is abstract because it's, it's only a formal universal and it is immediate precisely because of the appearance of absoluteness that it has. What we call the sphere of abstract right is the realization of this abstract autonomy of human beings. In it we do not find the particularity, the determinacy of concrete individuals. Property, for instance, is a formal universal because all the various categories of whatever can function as a property and all the inner motivations 
for the desire to have a particular property remain implicit. They would need to be added to the idea of property externally as an added interest. I own this or that. That is what is right. And now I declare why I liked or wanted that same thing. Now that is an addition without any legal importance. The particulars are beyond and outside of the formal universal. And note here that a concrete universal would contain the particulars as its inner determinations. When we consider the concept of property, however, it is easy to see why it must be called a formal universal. This abstract autonomy that corresponds to the abstract institutions of right is what Hegel then defines as person or personality. Even though it is an expression for the abstract relation of an individual to itself, it is nevertheless the foundation of right as a whole. The concept of personality does change internally by becoming more and more concrete. First of all, it turns into the moral subject. Then it becomes family member, then citizen within civil society, and then just human being, the concrete and needy being that defines the subjectivity of economy. The idea of personality, however, is not lost in its higher expressions. All subjects, so persons, citizens, etc., are equal to one another because all of them are autonomous, so all of them are persons. They continue to be defined by their self-relatedness. The concept of personality is therefore both the abstract and only immediate form of our social existence, and yet at the same time it is the principle and the foundation of the whole of our social existence. Whatever we find in our analysis of the social institutions of freedom, we can never find anything that is in contradiction to the principle of personality. There is no social institution that can negate or transcend the principle of autonomy, which has at least this consequence, that humans may never be treated as things. In Kantian terminology, a person can never be treated as a means to an end, but should be treated as an end in itself. When we talk about abstract rights, we only talk about formal rights and obligations. Out of the concept of personality, there is only one command to be derived, the obligation not to violate a person's rights, not to rob him of his rights. But this prohibition is not enough to ground the concept of a society. Society and in its institutions aim for the realization of human subjectivity. The ultimate goal of human economy, for instance, is not to achieve a social and technological organization of the fulfillment of our needs or the gratification of our desires. Of course, the sphere of the economy cannot be totally detached from the realization of freedom. Nevertheless, the ultimate telos, and that means not as an arbitrary goal or ideal, but as the inner cause or teleology of society, is the achievements within the sphere of absolute spirit, that is art, religion and philosophy, the latter including the sciences. A state 
that safeguards the freedom of its citizens, protects an economy that satisfies the basic needs of those citizens, establishes the conditions for the arts, guarantees the freedom of religion, actively promotes scientific endeavors, and values all of that as society's highest accomplishment, is truly a liberal state. Let's take a look at the paragraphs on personality, paragraph 35 to 39 of the philosophy of right. Let's begin with paragraph 35, the concept of autonomy. Hegel talks about a formal, self-conscious and simple autonomy of the person. Now that is a concept with an inner duality. On the one hand, I, as a person, am determined by my inner drives and longings and arbitrary emotions, etc., etc., On the other hand, I am able to abstract from all of that to exist as a pure relation to myself. This concept of autonomy, that Hegel actually does not use in this connection, has necessarily no particular content. Autonomy is either there or it is not. It doesn't come in degrees or in a variety of shapes. It is an understanding of myself that is, in a sense, truly universal, albeit abstractly universal, because everyone can say the same. Everyone can say, I am a person. Therefore, it's an understanding of myself that is based solely on an act of thought. I know myself myself to be free, and I can only be free if there is no particular determination coming either from the outside or from the inside that may define me or define my freedom. Let's go to paragraph 36, which deals with the notion of respect of personality. Even though the concept of personality is in this sense purely abstract, it is still the abstract basis of all right, of the whole chapter of right, of the whole philosophy of right. We talked about that earlier. In paragraph 36, Hegel reiterates the Kantian formula to express this. Be a person 
and respect others as persons. To acknowledge one's own autonomy implies that I do not want to be treated as a thing. My actions are my own. I am responsible for the exercise of my freedom. The respect for others implies that I cannot take others just as a means for my own ends. Of course, all of these statements are formal, and yet there are, despite their, they are, despite their abstract nature, the founding principles of any modern society. We turn now to paragraph 37, personality as an abstract universal. That is the first of three paragraphs that develop the concept of personality some more in detail. Hegel has treated the whole consciousness of the free will in the introduction, and he has reiterated in paragraph 34 that any free will has specific goals, and from its own viewpoint, a particular external world in which it exercises itself. The particularity of the will is a moment or an element of the totality of the free will. However, with the concepts of property and contract, my specific interest or particular needs do not play a part in the definition of this social institution. They may define me and my self-awareness, but not this social institution that produces and limits my freedom. The concept of property does not differentiate between the strength of desires or the intensity of the needs that are the specific concern of the proprietor. If I am not hungry and yet I am the owner of 30 loaves of bread, my property as such is defined in the same way as that of the one who is hungry and is the owner of 30 pounds of silver. The ownership as such is in both cases exactly the same, even though the objects of uh, that ownership are uh, totally different and the situation of the subject, that is the owner, um, is totally different. In the addition to paragraph 37, Hegel states that the particularity of the free person is something indifferent to the abstract freedom and therefore also indifferent to the abstract notion of property. But out of that he draws a very interesting conclusion. He argues that the whole of abstract right can be called a pure possibility. The institution of property allows me to treat something as my own, but it doesn't command me to do so. There is no necessity at work here. I can be the owner of something without having any interest in it at all. It is easy to see what this means. Even though being a person implies the possibility of being a proprietor, this relationship of property does not define my human existence fully, precisely because this connection is not necessary. Even though freedom in its abstract stage expresses itself in the proprietary relationship, it is obvious that my particular interest, my well-being, or whatever I find to be useful for myself, has nothing to do with property as such. Only when I have an intense interest in maintaining my personality against others is it possible that I become more interested in the property as such than in the object that I own. To make this more clear, um, an example from everyday life. Consider how the consciousness of property 
is developed during childhood. I remember myself from living with two parents and one younger sister, how sometimes the need to posit a proprietary relation was more important than the thing itself. My sister wanted, with an intense desire, four books that were given to us by my grandmother. Now, she had no interest in the contents of these books, nor was she able to read them. She was a couple of years younger than I was, and I could already read English, and she couldn't. Now, I had a keen interest in these books that gave some kind of a summary of world history, and to me they were a fabulous treasure, written also in an easy English that I was able to read already. Yet she insisted that these books were her property because our grandmother had given them to her, which was not completely true. They were given to her in order to hand them over to me, but I will leave that aside because that belongs to the category of injustice. So what is going on here? It was the desire to express her personality, her existence as a person, by being in possession of precisely those books that her brother now could not own. Excluding me from this particular property was her primary objective, without any interest whatsoever in the nature of the object. And I understood that, even though my interest was by far greater, that this interest alone did not constitute my ownership. I did not acquire a right to these books uh, because I loved them so much. Now, I remember this incident because I derived from it a first insight into the nature of property and its relation to the expression of personality even though at the time I didn't know the words to express all of that.
The second of these three paragraphs um, in which Hegel develops the concept of personality is paragraph 38. In that paragraph, Hegel argues that the institutions of abstract right only constitute a possibility, we talked about that before, and therefore to the subject they only give allowance. The necessity that is within this social institution is for that reason limited to the prohibition to violate the rights of others, to harm other persons by not respecting their personality. Now that is the reason that so many rules of law are actually prohibitions, and that even the most positive expressions of judicial commandments have their final ground in some prohibition. Then the final paragraph, paragraph 39, a summary of the structure of this concept of personality. That is the third and concluding statement. In it, Hegel summarizes the whole of the formal structure that we have found. Now, first of all, there is a person that is the subject of free will. It is truly subjective. It is closed in on itself. It is self-relatedness. It is self-awareness in this very abstract sense in which everyone has this same kind of thought or uh, self-consciousness and it is abstracted from the concrete nature of my individual being. On the other hand, and in opposition to that, there is a world of objects out there, a whole series of them. There are possible actions, there are goals, there are other people. That is the determined structure that at first determines the existence, the situation of the free will. But that, however, is not a fixed state of affairs. This personal free will tries to negate itself as merely subjective. It wants to be more than just this abstract subjective element. It wants to transcend itself. It wants to include the external world in its own self-relatedness. Simply said, I want to have something. Thereby becoming a particular free will, a free will that has expressed itself in reality. That is, the individual wants to express its particularity in the external objects of its freedom, and we can think of both material objects or actions. Now, in other words, it wants to give itself a reality, or what is the same, it wants to posit a specific determinate being, this cup of coffee, as its own, as belonging to it. Returning to our first statements about the nature of free will, I want a cup of coffee, that was the opening statement, the beginning of this whole development. And now we have reached the stage where I say, even when I don't want to drink it, I revel in the fact that this cup of coffee is mine. I put my will in it. It is the external reality of my will. It is mine. Even when I don't drink it, you cannot touch it. That fact expresses my freedom my superiority over things, the thing that is in itself neutral and without meaning now has a meaning, it is now the uh, reality, the sphere of reality that belongs to me. I exclude you from using it, and even 
simply as an object, I know myself to be a proprietor even when I don't use it or uh, drink it. That is the first stage that we need to uh, consider when we are going into the paragraphs about property and contract, this nature of the personality which is the true subject of abstract right. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Listening to Robert Vane's Hegel Podcast. 